What's up, guys? This is Dr. Jay Tita, and you are listening to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching, your place to be coached and see better results. But we do not stop at training and nutrition. No, we go even deeper and we touch on entrepreneurship. We touch on lifestyle. We touch on stress. We touch on mindset. We touch on all things personal development. And that's what this podcast is about, helping you develop yourself into the best version of yourself. Grow yourself experience more, succeed with more, see better results across the board. If you are new to the show, please do me a favor. Look in the show notes uh, in the description and check out our top four episodes. This is going to be the nutrition FAQ, the training FAQ, nutritional periodization, and my personal journey into fitness. Those are the top four most popular episodes. And I want you to check them out because it really encompasses what this show is about from a training and nutrition standpoint and gives a little bit of insight of who I am, how I coach, and why I do what I do. Now, today's podcast is another episode with my good friend, Dr. Jade Tata. This is round two. Um, I have been reading articles and following Jade Tata, reading his books, soaking up his content shit for I don't know how many years. I explained it on the first time we had him on the show. So it's really cool for me to have him on the podcast and now for me to call him a friend. You know, we did part one and we had so much good feedback. Everybody kept asking for him to come back on. Him and I have stayed on in touch quite frequently, texting throughout this period of time. And we were like, dude, fuck it. Let's get you back on. Let's do another episode on the metabolism and let's dive deep and answer some listener questions. So today we actually go a little bit deeper than last time. So I'm going to link the previous episode in the show notes so you guys can go check out part one, which is a really good explanation of what the metabolism is and why it's so important for us to pay attention to. And then in part two, we briefly summarize that in the first maybe five to 10 minutes, and then we dive deep deeper into all the mechanics of the metabolism and how to truly understand the more specific and kind of nitty gritty things about it and how to manipulate it so you can see better success with your body. And then we dive deep into all things diet break, refeed, mini cuts, and answering a ton of questions that you guys sent in um, for me and Jade to cover on the metabolism. So there's a ton of information on this episode all surrounding the metabolism and how training, nutrition, and stress are going to influence that both positively and negatively. So grab a pad and a pen and get ready to take some notes because damn, there is a ton of gold information in this podcast. Guys, real quick before we jump into it, just remember that the number one way for you to help me grow this podcast is to A, leave a five-star rating and review, which you can do by going over to iTunes, searching the Boom Boom Performance Podcast in the search bar, and then purposely leaving a five-star rating and review. Let me know what you like about the show. I want to hear from you guys. And then number two, it's to share this with your friends, whether you email to them, whether you text them an episode, or you can share it on social media, either Facebook or Instagram, and I would greatly appreciate if you did that right now. Take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram story, and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag at Jade Tata so we can see who is listening to this. Actually, I believe it's at Dr. Jade Tata, so make sure you get it right. I will put it in the show notes. But guys, we want to hear from you. We want to know who's listening to this, and most importantly, we want more people to get access to this information so they can see better results and they can have more personal growth just like you are from this. So let's share the wealth of knowledge and help more people together. Join the movement. All right, guys, without any further ado, let's get on to this amazing episode with my good friend, Dr. Jade Tata. All right, Jade, episode two, man. I'm excited to have you back, uh, back by popular demand because people love the last episode we did. And uh, like you said before this, you got a ton of great feedback. I've gotten a ton of great feedback and actually a lot of people literally asking me to get you back on the show. So I'm glad we finally made it happen, man. Cody, love you, brother. Good to be back. Yeah, it's funny. I was getting all kinds of people hitting me up on Instagram asking follow-up questions and that's always really cool. So uh, you definitely uh, did something right last time. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, man. So what I want to do today is we, we have a lot of good questions from the listeners. Um, so we're going to go into some specific topics. But I would love if you could, um, I think it would, it would help if you could even just do like, kind of do it in a nutshell. For everybody listening who didn't listen to part one, I'm going to link that in the show notes. You've got to go listen to that because that really sets the foundation for everything Jade does inside the industry, especially with the metabolism specifically. But I'd love it if you could uh, maybe in a nutshell talk about um, getting your heck in check just because that's your yeah. kind of term that you coined. And I think that kind of sets the groundwork before we dive into these questions. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, I think that for, for most people, I think most people listening and certainly you and I are Cody familiar with this 
debate that goes back and forth about is it calories or is it hormones, right? Is it quantity or is it quality? What should we be paying attention to? What matters most in terms of fat loss and uh, looking good, feeling good and living longer? And so this debate has been sort of ongoing. And my way of looking at this is that usually we humans do this a lot, don't we? We have this very dichotomous black and white thought process. It's kind of what our brain likes to do. It wants things sort of wrapped up in a neat little bow for us to make it simple. But it is rarely that simple, especially when we're talking about the metabolism. So last time, Cody, you and I talked about some of these issues around that. And one of the things that uh, was important for people to understand in that last episode is the idea of what is required to achieve sustainable fat loss. And I use those two words on purpose, sustainable, because we, anyone can lose weight for a time. The issue is, can you keep it off? Can it last? And fat loss versus weight loss. And to me, two things are required. A calorie deficit is absolutely required and hormonal metabolic balance is required. The calorie deficit is what gets you the results. The hormonal metabolic balance is what makes those results fat loss oriented and sustainable. So then the question goes, well, how do we measure these two things? Well, obviously, if you're achieving a calorie deficit, you will see a fat loss, weight loss on the scale. However, how do we quantify or qualify the hormonal aspect of this thing? Well, we use the biofeedback that the body is putting out. Things like sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, exercise, performance, exercise recovery, changes in libido and menses, and those kinds of things, digestion, signs and symptoms, all these things are impacted either directly or indirectly by hormones. And so I came up with this little acronym, HEC, H-E-C, hunger, energy, and cravings. You also can call it SHMEC, S-H-M-E-C, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings as sort of a catch-all phrase to explain or to sort of address this hormonal aspect of things. So if your heck or schmeck is in check, you can, meaning that it's in control, you're not having accessible, uh, insatiable hunger, your cravings are controllable, your energy is stable and predictable. If your heck is in check, this is a good indication that you are metabolically, hormonally balanced and you can, uh, sustain, achieve and sustain fat loss. And so last time we were talking about the nuance of this, that it's not one or the other, it's not calories or hormones, it's both. And that in order to address both, you wanna both, yes, look at body composition changes on the scale, but also look at biofeedback uh, that the body is sending you. And then you can begin to understand how to tweak, adjust, and change things around like a metabolic detective instead of a dieter, which is what you and I got into last time. So hopefully that gets sort of everyone um, caught up on this uh, and sort of an understanding of what Cody and I were trying to address at the last time we spoke. Yeah, and I think, I think that really does set the stage perfectly because I talk about it so much too. It, it's so in between. There is no one thing that you need to master you really it really is a combination of both and you can't neglect hormones or calories inverse calories out as a, an equation so with that being said um, there's a few follow-up questions that actually kind of interject perfectly with that the first being um, starvation mode I want to talk about that briefly before we dive into kind of periodizing this process of nutrition and, and fat loss as a sustainable goal um, what is starvation mode is it real and how do you explain this phenomenon to the general population because it's something that gets thrown out there quite a bit um, there's people that say it's not even a thing there's people that explain it differently and i would love to get your take on it because it's something that came up quite a bit when i said you were coming on the show yeah you know it's funny isn't it cody a lot of times we humans get bogged down in terminology that we don't like you know there's certain there's certain terms that we just simply don't like you know adrenal fatigue is one metabolic damage is another starvation mode is another but then there's other terms that are more acceptable like overtraining most people are not going to you know complain about overtraining most people a stress response most people are not going to you know, complain about stress response. And this is a discussion really that we have to have about the differences between diagnostic things and 
more functional things. I'll give you an example. If in my clinical practice as a physician, if someone comes in and is complaining of being tired, peeing a lot, weight gain, these kinds of things, I might be thinking diabetes, right? So I might run a battery of tests on them and look at blood sugar levels. Now, if their blood sugar level is 120, I diagnose them with diabetes. However, if their blood sugar level is 115, when normal is, you know, 60 to 80, I don't diagnose them with diabetes. But they're certainly not normal. They're not functional. There's something going on, right? And so we make up names at that point. We say, oh, this is pre-diabetes, or this is, um, you know, uh, dys dysglycemia, or any number of other things that just try to express the fact that there's something going on, but it's not yet a disease. So I think terms like adrenal fatigue, starvation mode, metabolic damage, they're really just terminologies that we're using to explain something that we see clinically that is not yet a disease. So you don't have to call it starvation mode. I'm not so you know, um, caught up on that name either, but we do need to call it something. So starvation mode is another term for uh, overtraining or overstressing. And the idea that when we put our body under stress, either by not feeding it enough or training too hard, it will begin to have predictable responses that resemble what would happen if we were all out on the plains, uh, you know, in the outback of Australia living off the land and couldn't find food, we would have some predictable responses like increases in hunger, unpredictable and unstable energy, unsatiable cravings, fragmented and disrupted sleep, changes in our mood. These are, and a slowdown in metabolic rate. These are all things that we can, we know intuitively, commonsensically, and we also know based on the research. And so a starvation response, so the term starvation response is just essentially saying that there is something that happens relatively predictably when the body is under stress and the most common stress that our physiology saw for millennia as it evolved was not enough food, and, uh, and that then related to the idea that we had to slow our metabolic rate and put these biofeedback sensations in motion so that we'd be motivated to go find food. And so in a very real sense, when the metabolism is uh, confronted with any kind of stress, really, whether it's you, know, um, you and me stuck in traffic, Cody, or in an argument with our significant other, or under a deadline at work, or being chased by the proverbial, you know, saber tooth tiger or actually dealing with overtraining and undernutrition. Anytime we are under any kind of stress, we will deal with to some degree the ancestral stress response, which is as which has many aspects of the starvation response. Heck out of check, metabolic slowdown. That's what we mean by the starvation response. And by the way, if you are a science geek, one of the things that Cody and I would tell you is that if you want to go and look up starvation response in PubMed, you won't find that term. But what you will find is term, a term called adaptive thermogenesis. And this is probably where you want to spend your research time if you're going to be looking at what exactly is the starvation response. Researchers have uh, one aspect of it is adaptive thermogenesis. It's not the whole aspect of it you'll learn an awful lot about it in PubMed. So hopefully that gets us sort of up to speed and over the idea that we don't like this term starvation response. I wish we had a, a more diagnostic term. I wish we had a more exact term, but we use these kinds of terms to explain something so we can all talk about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I think one way to look at it too is, is something I always coin and, and kind of let people know and I'm talk to clients about is you're basically in a recovery debt. You have too much stress coming in wherever that's coming from. And I think that's the biggest issue people fail to realize is they go into a fat loss plan and they understand that training and nutrition can be a stress if you're in a deficit and you're training hard, but they forget that, like you said, traffic, fights with your significant other, work stress, emotional stress, any type of negative stress or situations in your life will kind of give you that negative adaptation to your nervous system. And it's all going to affect the same thing. Your body looks at stress as stress. Um, so I love the way you put that. And I think people just need to look at stress as a whole versus trying to isolate it so much because otherwise 
you kind of screw yourself and get into this quote unquote recovery debt. And that's when you have too much stress coming in and not enough recovery going out. Yeah. See, that's why I love these conversations too, Cody, because I love that recovery debt is a great way um, to explain that. So I'm probably going to steal that from you and of course give you credit, but that's how we get better. So, all right, so let's start talking about things like recovery debt or other ways of explaining it if we don't like starvation mode, but let's not shut our brain off to what's really happening just because we don't like a term. 100% agree. And, and I, I, I will echo that, man. That's why I love these conversations so much. And it, it's always nice hearing that people like yourself agree with, with how I coin things too. So, so much appreciated there. Let's, let's kind of dive into the periodization of things, man. I talk quite a bit about this with um, inside my content because it's something I've always done with clients. Um, and I think for coaches listening, it can be a hard buy-in when you're trying to grow your business at the beginning, because it's a long-term process. You have to get people to commit to a long period of time because you do have to implement deficits and maintenance phases and possibly even surpluses that period of time, which is going to slow the, the overall rate of loss across week to week, but it's going to increase the longevity of the result you see. Um, so you've got to get people to buy in for longer, but I, I'm curious because this was brought up since I do talk about nutritional periodization so much is your take on periodization. So the way I kind of want to set the stage for you is you get someone fresh to the game and they're ready to lose weight. They have no metabolic issues at all, uh, but you want to make sure they don't uh, accumulate any negative adaptations along the way and you have them for a full year of coaching how do you set up their nutrition as far as periodization goes over the course of weeks and months let's say oh i love this question such a good question so here's here's the way i do this i'm listening closely to what you're you know sort of the parameters that you're giving me this is someone with no metabolic issues so i'm assuming they're not a repeat dieter they're not overtraining that kind of thing and so what i'm going to do with them typically is because also, we all as coaches, myself as well, get paid for results, right? And so what I'm thinking about, let me get this person some results quickly to motivate them, but also let me set them up for the long run to be successful. So typically what I'm going to do, and this might surprise people in this particular case, because there's no metabolic issues, this is someone brand new to the game, I'm going to start them right where the rest of the world would start them, which is pretty much in an eat less exercise more type approach. Now I'm assuming they don't have any metabolic issues, meaning they're not overweight, they're not over fat, they're just someone who wants to get in better shape. So that's what I'm assuming here, because I would do something different if this person was very overweight. What I'm going to do with them is put them essentially in an eat less, exercise more state, okay? So I'm going to reduce calories to some degree, whether I cut calories down directly, whether I, focus on carbohydrates as a way to reduce calories or whether I focus on fats as a way to reduce calories or whether I focus on just bumping up protein and fiber as a way to accidentally push down the calories. I'm going to take uh, their calories down to some degree. I'm also going to be looking at personal preferences. If this is a person who would rather not be counting things and that's going to get in the way, then I'll give them a more intuitive approach. Maybe, hey, just eat more of these foods and less of these. If it's someone who likes math and needs to have a calorie counting approach, I'm going to say follow this macronutrient. But the end result is an eat less, exercise more type of approach. I typically, by the way, if we're getting, you know, for people who want the specifics, I'm typically when I mean exercise more, I'm, I think I'm taking someone from being a couch potato and I'm going to get them walking probably 10,000 steps a day and get them, depending on their level of buy-in, to at least be doing three to four mixed metabolic conditioning, you know, some kind of resistance training slash cardio mix three to four times per week. Now, the question that I think you're asking, Cody, is, okay, what do you do from there? Well, here's what I know, and you know, and I know you know this because you and I talk about this a lot, is that the metabolism is not some linear, predictable math equation, uh, you know, apparatus. It is a changeable, adaptable, reactive system. And so anything I do to it, soon as I do that to it, what's it going to do? It's going to begin to adjust and change and look for homeostasis, which means it's going to be adjusting the hormonal sort of signatures and messages that are going on in that system. So I know I have a limited time for eat less, exercise more to work. My clinical experience tells me that's going to be anywhere from seven to 14 days for most people. If I, 
I can leave him maybe as long as a month, but I know I don't want to rely on willpower too much, and I don't want them to get stuck. So I'm typically going to leave them in that eat less, exercise more state until hunger, energy, and cravings, heck, goes out of check. And then I'm going to change my approach. Now you might say, well, what do you change the approach to, Jay? Well, from my perspective, there's four different metabolic toggles. Two are a little bit more risky because they create a large calorie gap. Eat less, exercise more can be risky because we can induce this sort of hunger, energy, cravings, and then result in binge eating behavior and reverse all of the gains that we had. Eat more, exercise less. The couch potato model is also risky. I know from sort of my extrapolation of the research and my clinical understanding that I could probably leave someone in eat less, exercise more as long as a month, but probably around two weeks, I'm going to try to take them out of that. Eat more, exercise less, about four to seven days max is what I want to leave them in. Now, there's two other toggles. I can have them eat less, exercise less, which is moving a lot, but not exercising and eating very sparingly or eat more, exercise more, sort of the athlete approach. Exercising a lot and you're fueling a lot. So once I get people through that eat less, exercise more phase, I'm going to move them probably into an eat less, exercise less, or eat more, exercise more phase. Because these two phases, you can stay in for much, much longer. They are far more sustainable and more balancing, partly because the calorie gap between input and um, intake and output is less. And so I'm going to move them into one of those types of approaches. If you're telling me this is a metabolically stable person and highly, highly motivated, it's probably gonna be the athlete approach. I'm gonna bump their food up and I'm going to leave them in that sort of state probably for two to three months before I come out of it for a period of time. And you say, well, come out of it, Jade. What are you coming out of it into? Uh, maybe an eat less, exercise less approach. Maybe a very brief eat more, exercise less approach. But I don't stay and eat more, exercise less long. That's how I begin the process. Now, I can continue rambling on, but I just want to stop here before, you know, just to see what your take is. But the end result is I'm starting them where everyone else starts. I'm just noticing and realizing and dealing with the reality that the metabolism doesn't work the way we think it does. You cannot leave someone and eat less, exercise more for long. Therefore, I have to use these other three metabolic toggles. And so I will quickly move them into one that is more stable. And then I will move them around these four different toggles as hunger, energy, and cravings change and adjust, signaling me when to change, and based on their body composition results. And that becomes the game that I begin to play. I love it, man. I think a couple things. One question, and then one thing I want to point out for coaches listening. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Matador study that came out not long ago, but I get questions about it all the time. And um, I, this is why it's super important to research other professionals in the industry and see what they've done with experience and anecdote, because it takes so long to publish any studies on any of these type of things. And the Matador study is great. But it's, it's not always going to work exactly how they did it there because we can't determine how somebody's metabolism is going to go across the weeks. They did a very linear, I don't know if it was one week on, one week off, or two weeks on, two weeks off, but it was very structured at that in a repetitive format. Whereas in real life with clients, the like exercising more and eating less, the deficit period and the kind of refeed period that you're explaining, those are going to change. Is it, is it one week? Is it two weeks? Is it three weeks? Because we never know. It's everybody's so individual. But you've been doing this for years. And the Matador study finally just came out. And people are finally feeling like they have acceptance or reasoning and, and kind of backing to be like, oh, okay, I can do this now. But the reality is, is like this stuff has been working for years. So it's important to just trust anecdote and what people like yourself have been doing. Um, and, and my question with this is, do you ever find that like, let's say this person is has more weight to lose than what you explained. Let's say they do have 30 pounds to lose and you're still bringing them in and out of these um, kind of areas of, of uh, exercise more, eat less and exercise more, eat more and so on and so forth. Are you spending more uh, periods of times in deficits and less periods of times in those kind of quote unquote refeed states because they have more weight to lose kind of like interjectingly adding in a diet break, let's say every one to two weeks mm -hmm. to make sure that they're staying hormonally safe while you take them through this process. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, that makes complete sense. And um, I typically, I don't typically like doing a lot of refeeds, um, to be honest. So what I typically do, and, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Actually, refeeds work fantastic. But in your, in your normal people, and I've learned with normal uh, everyday lay folks, right? Refeeds can be a slippery slope because they oftentimes include highly palatable, um, you know, sort of hedonistic foods, which can trigger a, a cheat weekend turns into a cheat two months, right? And so I typically try to steer clear of those. And when I do use them, I tend to use bland refeeds, uh, you know, so lots of blander, uh, wetter starches and things like that versus highly palatable pizzas and burgers and things like that. So that's the, the first thing I'll say. But the, to your question, what I typically do is I bring them back to um, calorie balance, then I go back into calorie deficit, then back to calorie balance, then back to calorie deficit. For example, eat less, exercise more almost always creates a pretty wide gap in calorie deficit, right? And so I'm looking for that gap, and then I will bring them back to either eat more, exercise more, or eat less, exercise less, which is either I can, I can use those two toggles to keep calories balanced and just kind of reset, and or at least narrow the calorie gap, right? So that the, the system is not stressed. And by the way, the Matador study was two weeks low cal, two weeks normal cal. And so it, so it actually uh, is similar to what I typically do. So it wasn't two weeks low cal, two weeks high cal, or it was sort of doing that sort of approach where it's like, here's a low calorie deficit, and then we go back to a normal calorie sort of diet. And I tend to do it that way as well. Now, in practice, as people get good at this, a lot of you, here's what's really interesting about this. I bet you, um, you know, Cody and I, I think, talked about this last time, and I bet a lot of you listening are kind of being, hey, Cody, hey, Jade, you know what? I tend to do this naturally. You know, there's days when I train, I eat more, and the days that I don't train, um, I eat less. And some days when I don't train, like when I travel sometimes, I'll just fast on those days. Whether you realize it or not, you are doing this um, intuitively. So that's what's kind of beautiful about this. A lot of us get there. There's no real magic to this. A lot of us are doing it naturally anyway. Um, it's just that when we're coaching people, we should teach them um, sort of what we, what some of us might get intuitively. Um, I'll tell you about another really interesting study. It's an extreme eat less, exercise more study. It, was, it basically followed a small group of Scandinavian men over a weekend. And what these Scandinavian men did was walk, essentially, meander, slow walking for eight hours over a weekend. And during that um, time, they were being basically fed a small amount of, essentially, Gatorade. And the amount of calories that they were taking in was extremely low, around 300 to 800 calories on those days. So the calorie gap was huge. This is also, though, an eat less, exercise less type of approach in my mind because they weren't hoisting weights around and doing all that kind of stuff. And they weren't huffing and puffing. They were just moving a lot. And that was for a weekend only. They lost a, an extreme amount of weight, up to 11 pounds, some of these people, in a weekend. A lot of it water, a, a very sizable portion of it, though, fat. And what was interesting is they maintained most of this weight. They didn't have this weight regain that usually happens in overcompensation a year later some of them were still down from that one extreme eat less, exercise less type of approach. And the only reason I bring that up is because when it's done intermittently in this way, it is far better than trying to force the metabolism to do this over a very long period of time. And this is something that we all should be thinking about. Obviously, Cody's been doing it and having great success with it. I have been doing it and having great success with it. And now we have some studies that are actually starting to show that this is a highly successful way of doing it as well. So I, I don't know if I went off on a tangent there, Cody, but I think I answered your question. Did that get to it? I know I added some things in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up, the, up that study because it's a good example. And the way you explained it is a good example of a longevity-based fat loss approach doesn't necessarily need to be one long linear calorie deficit. It can be a bunch of mini deficits across a long period of time, and it actually might be more advantageous that way. Yeah, I would, I would say that it is because it's sort of like, you know, if we think about, I know I don't always like this, Cody, and you can challenge me here if you want. I'm just going to throw this out. And just everyone listening, challenge me on this or see if it makes sense because 
I do think the, the whole paleo man construct can be taken so far. You know, we hear that a lot. It's like, oh, let's look at what our ancestors did and try to mimic that as much as possible. That works up to some, some point, but it can, go a, you know, it can go a little too far. But if we are living in the Australian outback, let's say, or in the African Sahara and food is you know, um, not always guaranteed, we are going to naturally have periods of time where we have excess. We are going to naturally have periods of time where we are in extreme deficits. And we're going to have you know, periods of time where we have sort of caloric balance. All this is really doing is trying to mimic that to some degree. Um, I think the worst thing that we can do as coaches, and, and actually I'll rephrase it, I think one of the worst things we've done for society is to bring this sort of idea that we must have a consistent, sustained approach always, this linear, consistent, predictable approach. You can't have a linear, consistent, predictable approach with a system like the metabolism that is anything but linear, predictable, and consistent. The metabolism thrives off change, just like our brains do, right? I mean, if you're doing the same thing day in and day out, talking to the same people, reading the exact same book, watching the exact same episode of the exact same show, you're going to be a pretty boring, dumb, uh, you know, sort of mushed, mushed in the head and have no real brain. The metabolism is the same way. If you're doing, if, if the metabolism is watching the same episode of the same show, talking to the same people all the time, reading the exact same books, the metabolism is going to be pretty worthless as well. It's not, it needs challenge. And this is a great way to do it. So yes, intermittent fasting in the context of that for a period of time can be highly beneficial. A short-term keto diet approach can be highly beneficial. Actually, both of those things I would call an eat less, exercise less approaches. A 12-week, you know, sort of, uh, you know, bodybuilding diet, six, feet, six meals a day, lots of calories, training hard with weights, um, can be beneficial, but we wouldn't want to do any of those things forever. I, I actually believe that if we all move to a keto diet, everyone was just doing keto diets all the time and doing them the right way, we would run into problems of the metabolism getting stuck in keto diet mode. Most people are stuck in the eat less, exercise more mode, and most coaches are voluntarily putting their clients in this state, not realizing that it's the exact wrong thing to do to the metabolism. There's nothing wrong with eat less, exercise more. It can get great results if it's used appropriately and for short periods of time. It is not going to work if you try to force it down people's throats day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. It's not the way the metabolism works. Something that just came up into my mind as you were speaking, um, I didn't make this term up, but I heard it and it kind of gave me a, a use of the word inside of some of the clients I've worked with, um, but a, a highly adaptive metabolism, basically somebody's metabolism that adapts to a caloric change pretty quickly. Um, something I've noticed is that when reverse dieting a client, bringing somebody up, something I like to do is actually use your eat more, exercise more. Um, I actually just posted a blog on this today as we're recording this. Um, in a case study, I worked with this girl for 15 months bringing her calories up and just changing her training from cardio to strength-based slowly. But we did more and we ate more and she actually didn't change weight whatsoever, but she changed her body completely, complete transformation, but no weight change whatsoever. And I look at her kind of like a highly adaptive metabolism. We added a ton of calories and she adapted really well. The fear I have with these kind of clients is because their metabolism is so adaptive. If I try to bring them into a cut later on and bring calories down, it's going to adapt just as well, but in the way we don't want it to, as in, I'm going to bring you into a small deficit. Let's say we pull five to 10% of calories, like a normal, small, moderate deficit. And you don't see any change because it wasn't significant enough. Your, your body, your metabolism adapted too quickly to it. Do you ever see this with clients? Is this a thing that you, you notice as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I call, you know, we, we can refer to it by a lot of things. I like that term. And I think, um, you know, this, go, this speaks to metabolic flexibility as well. A very metabolically flexible system is going to adapt very, very quick. A very metabolically rigid system is not going to adapt at all. And so obviously for the rigid system, you're going to uh, really want to um, change things up a little bit. This is what's interesting about this is that on either side of that spectrum, someone who's very, very flexible and someone who's very, very rigid you kind of need to do the same thing. Lots of 
changes, lots of, you know, sort of challenges to the metabolism to one, on the one hand, one extreme, get it to move, right? And on the other extreme, you know, keep it moving. And so I think there's, um, and by the way, I would say to that as well, that it's, it's certainly not a one size um, fits all approach here. Sometimes some of these, you know, what you're calling highly adaptive individuals simply have a, like I've had people like that where you find a particular toggle, a particular metabolic state that they thrive best in. And I've always thought maybe that has to do with genetics. Maybe it just has to do with personal preference and they're just more adherent and, you know, sort of more tolerant of it. But sometimes it is about this highly adaptive state or highly rigid state. And sometimes it's just about finding that um, that protocol that most suits their personality, right? So, for example, like I, when I played sports when I was young, the first sport I got introduced to was soccer, and I freaking hated it, um, you know, because I was running around a lot. Then I discovered football, and it just suited me. Now, I oftentimes think to myself, if I had stayed with soccer, I probably would end up hating exercise and stopped doing it. But because I found football, which was suited more to my genetics, I stuck with it and developed a fitness regime around that because I loved football. So I think what you're saying is true. And I also think we want to um, be uh, diligent in trying to find and match people to the particular toggle. So for example, I do really, really well in an eat more, exercise more type of approach. Love that sort of approach. I know other people who do much better on an eat less, exercise less approach. So part of it's finding which approach seems to work best for someone. And of course, from there, you're still not going to be able to keep, you still should not keep them in there for long periods of time. You still bounce around, but that's where they come back to. So oftentimes I call it plan B nutrition, meaning you have your plan A approach, but anytime life gets the better of me, right? And things get too stressed out and I'm overwhelmed. And, you know, Cody and I were just talking before we started this podcast about we've both been really busy. I oftentimes go back to my plan B nutrition. I have a plan, a toggle that I will uh, uh, you know, essentially use that I know will get me results. And so I just move back to that. So I think this is a discussion around, yes, understanding are you more adaptive slash flexible or more, you real, more rigid, inflexible, and how do we approach that? And then also, uh, which one of these sort of protocols, now that we're, we're all becoming aware that there's different states that we can put people in, which one suits that client the best and should we revisit the most, if that makes sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. I think one of the things that comes to my mind is this is why I love when clients commit to a long period of time with a coach because you actually do learn about the client's metabolism and how it adapts to different things. So over the course of a long period of time, you can actually understand which toggle you need to bring somebody in and things get more progressive and more successful as you go with a coach. So I love the way you put that, man. But um, let's dive into these questions too because I could keep talking to you about this for days man we gotta we gotta get to these questions <laughs> yeah no same, same so um the first one comes from uh, on instagram rose roar and her question is and this is actually a really good question nutrition considerations for someone dealing with pcos yeah G great question uh, well first of all pcos we have to kind of, this is where by the way goes back to my discussion about having diagnoses you know i know a lot of people don't like having a di diagnosis and there's different things, but it can have some benefit when we get with something. So because we can then say, okay, what are the characteristics of this particular condition? Um, now, PCOS is tricky. PCOS suffers from, from, you know, a diagnosis that is not well understood, and there's not a whole lot of great treatment options for it. However, all of us, um, on this call uh, have actually have the understanding to understand PCOS because PCOS is, is a, in my mind, and when you look at this, you'll see it really is a disorder, again, of stress. Now, I know that when I use the word stress, everyone gets mad because they're like, come on, Jay, everything's a disorder of stress. But what I mean by that is what ends up happening if you understand the metabolism, in the metabolism, there is a command and control center in the brain called the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus has downstream signaling um, to the thyroid, the adrenals, and the ovaries. And this, when there is excess stress, and by excess stress, I mean this could be, um, you know, uh, uh, inflammatory responses coming from the gut, something we call metabolic endotoxemia. It can be 
um, you know, triggered by a viral infection. It could be triggered by emotional stress, undertraining, overeating. Any kind of stress can disrupt this, uh, you know, command and control center, causing downstream negative consequences to the thyroid, adrenals, and or ovaries. One of the reasons why PCOS has um, sort of cysts, developed cysts on the ovaries, because FSH and LH, the two hormones that sort of uh, communicate to the ovaries from the hypothalamus and pituitary are dysregulated. Now, if we understand that, then we can answer the question of what's the best dietary approach here? Well, this is a system that is uh, overly stressed, right? So uh, there is a, uh, a situation where what we need to do is take the stress load off the system. Of the toggles Cody and I have been talking about, eat less, exercise more, and eat more, exercise less, create a very large calorie gap one way or the other, so are more likely to be stressful to the system. Now, eat more, exercise more, and eat less, exercise less, are far less stressful on the system. And eat less, exercise less is probably the least stressful on the system. So to me, I would choose that protocol as my dominant protocol. Now, you don't have to stay there forever, but that would be my dominant protocol. By the way, just to get a little specific for this particular person, eat less, exercise less to me is really eat less, move more, exercise less, right? So it's, it's a lot of movement. It's low calorie. Um, it is uh, exercising, but no more than three times per week. And then from there, there are very specific nutrients that we can use that we know about that help this hypothalamus do a better job and communicate better. One of the best for women is uh, one called Vitex, which will work, um, I would say, 50 to 60% of the time to help the situation along here. It's not going to work for everyone, um, but there are also things like berberine and cortisol controlling or things like that that can help this system take some of the stress off as well as deal with some of the insulin resistance that occurs with PCOS. And I won't go on and on here, but the end result here is one, recognize this is a, um, what PCOS is, the diagnosis helps us, and then choose from a metabolic toggle that best addresses the primary dysfunction. And then we can sprinkle in some of the things we know that can help this mechanism out a little bit and you're far more likely to have success. I love it, man. I'll echo everything you said. Um, I was going to mention the insulin resistance and berberine and things like that too. And, and maybe just, and you can, if, if you disagree, um, let me know. I think the calorie deficit is probably the biggest key, but possibly creating that deficit through a lower carb approach because of the possible insulin resistance. Yep. I absolutely agree with that. One of the first things we do is really work with, with that. The only caveat I would give is, and this is no Cody's aware of, other than something everyone else should be aware of too. Sometimes when you go too low carb, you can also upregulate some of the stress hormones like cortisol further. Yeah. So it's about going lower carb, but also being um, savvy and not being too extreme. And by the way, there was a, a really interesting study recently on the benefits of a keto diet for PCOS. That doesn't mean, you know, don't make the mistake of being like, oh, I'll do the keto diet for PCOS. But also, isn't it interesting that the keto diet, in my mind, is an eat less, exercise less approach. And it was shown in um, one study to be uh, beneficial. Now, remember, studies are, are made for averages, not individuals. So that doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone, but it's far better than just guessing. Well said, man. I, I completely agree. And I'm glad you added the, the calorie deficit side of that because I think people mistake keto that keto is like this magic trick. And, and most of the time you still need to get into a deficit or an eat less exercise more approach to lose that weight, regardless of how you're setting up your macros. So hundred um, percent agree. The next question comes from K underscore Eastman. And she said, how often should you be changing up your macros? So your metabolism doesn't get quote unquote stuck. And you kind of mentioned this with how often you switch the toggles. Um, and my guess is that there's no general number because everybody's individual, but I'll let you answer it. Yeah, um, exactly what Cody said is no, there's no one-size-fits-all approach here, but I'll give you the, the whole point and the whole power of something like heck and schmeck, keeping your heck in check and your schmeck in check, is the idea that typically when those go out of check, when sleep becomes fragmented and disrupted, when hunger starts to creep up on you, 
when cravings become insatiable, when energy starts to be less stable and predictable, this is a good indication that that particular toggle or approach that you're using has now um, gone a little bit too far and it's time to switch. Now, for I can give you some general guidelines, typically with eat less, exercise more, that is going to happen within a month for almost everyone. For most everyone, it's gonna happen within seven to 10 days, typically. That's why I don't typically stay on that protocol for more than two weeks for most people. But there are some who can do it much longer, right? Eat less, exercise less seems to be one of these protocols that you can stay in for very long periods of time, three months, six months. Some people live that lifestyle. Eat more, exercise more, again, months, right? And eat more, exercise less. The couch potato, very short, four to seven days. You know, you want to kind of come out of that. But realize that you're an individual and your schmeck in check or heck in check will guide you. So when those things start to change, then you're doing yourself, um, you know, that, that's when you want to essentially say, I'm going to change my approach as well. Love it. Yeah. Make sure everybody's tracking their biofeedback is the, is the big key there too. Like how is your sleep? How is your stress? Is your weight changing? Is your body composition changing? Are you more moody? Are you more stressed? So on and so forth. Um, and that will kind of guide you as to when you can change those toggles up. So I love the way you put that, man. Um, Jen Johnston underscore YTN had a few really good questions. So we'll start with her first one, which is best ways to support a healthy metabolism in general, not necessarily speed it up. And I think she is a coach herself. So I think she's looking for maybe some insights into some general tips or recommendations she can give her clients essentially. Yeah, what, a, what a, a good question this is because I think we lose sight of this. And here, the good news about this one is we have an awful lot of good information on this. First of all, you know, you want to have, uh, we, we are pretty clear on the nutrition and it basically goes like this. We want a highly nutritious, lower calorie, not like extreme low calorie, but a lower calorie, higher, highly nutritious um, sort of diet and that and, and a highly satiating right so we want highly satiating uh, you know highly ca uh, you know sort of nutrient dense diet that is really been worked out well it is typically a diet that is rich in soups salads scrambles shakes and stir fries soup salad scramble shakes and stir fries foods like rich in water water rich protein rich and um, fiber rich nutrient dense foods those are the ones, soups, salads, scrambled shakes, and stir fries. Now, the soups, salads, scrambled shakes, and stir fries should be relatively devoid of lots of starch and fat. Not because there's anything wrong with starch and fat. It's just that we want to have a highly satiating, nutrient-dense, calorie-sparse diet. Once you add a bunch of fat and starch onto that, we might start to lose the calorie-sparse part of that. And so soup, salad, scrambles, and shakes, and stir fries with enough, but not too much, salt, sugar, fat, alcohol, starch, to make your diet enjoyable. Now onto that movement, 10,000 steps per day is uh, you know, sort of where the research comes out on this. And I, I have something to say about that uh, here in just a minute. And then based on that, enough, but not too much exercise, typically around three, I would say at a minimum, uh, resistance training sessions uh, per week, uh, or, or, yeah, per week, plus some you know, cardio if you want to intermingle it in there. I think that's where the research consensus is. It's also where my clinical experience is. But I will say this, because there's one thing about movement that I think um, will be interesting for, for us just to address real quick, Cody, and that is this. Movement is different than exercise. We should all kind of know that now, but in case you don't, this is the science of NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It just basically means that you want to move a lot and you burn a lot of calories through movement, and that is a, a separate thing from just exercise. However, the metabolism is adaptive and reactive, so we always have to play Socrates, right? What does Socrates say? He says, if you want to know the truth of a thing, make a statement and then try to find exceptions to it. Well, can we find exceptions where people who move a lot, walk a lot, aren't actually thin and metabolically healthy? Well, certainly we can. Construction workers, uh, nurses, uh, there's plenty of people who walk thousands and thousands of steps every day, but don't seem to have the lean, healthy physiques that um, we, we think they should have. 
Why? Because the metabolism is adaptive. So if you're doing 20,000 steps, 1,000 steps every day, the metabolism gets used to that and puts the brakes on and constrains its energy use in other areas. And so when I say 10,000 steps, keep in mind, if you're someone who's already doing 20,000, 30,000 steps per day, you may want to do much less. But the sweet spot is probably around 10,000 for most people. The goal is if you're moving less than that, move a little more. If you're moving a whole lot more than that, move a little less. You might be the master of nutritional acronyms, man. <laughs> you know, I've heard that before. I guess I'll take it, you know. <laughs> I love it. Soups, what, soup, salad, shakes, scramble, stir fries. Yeah, yeah. Say it like a song. Soup, salad, scramble, shakes, and stir fries. <laughs> I love it. That's so good. So good. Um, all right. Her next question is biggest biological and environmental effects on metabolism. Uh, to me, th this is going to be um, tough. And the reason why I'll say this is because um, this is like asking me to look in a crystal ball. I, this is an opinion-based question in my mind, and yeah. we'll see if Cody has a, a different opinion on this. Um, but I would say, if I had to guess for most people, because um, it, it's going to be metabolic endotoxemia um, is, is what I think is the big thing. Now that's a big long term. Most of you probably don't know what that is, but essentially you have this big soup, um, this big cauldron of metabolic activity is going on in your digestive tract. And right now, um, the reason I say it's an opinion, because whenever something's new and there's a hotbed of research going on, we all get excited about it. It's just natural human nature. I'm no different, right? So perhaps I'm a little bit biased because this is the novelty bias, right? Like there's a lot of action in this, in this realm. And I've learned a lot about it recently. Um, but I, I really feel like a lot of what we are learning is that um, this is the area that probably is going to pay the biggest uh, dividends in terms of our understanding of metabolism, the gut. Um, and ways to have this different. I actually hate the term toxins just because let's define what we're talking about. Well, stress, overwhelm at work, overtraining, undereating, that could be toxic to the body. Alcohol, it's funny that people talk about pesticides and all this and worry about GMOs and all that, but they have no problem sucking down vodka when it's a known, you know, toxin. It's the, only, it's the one known toxin that we know. You drink too much. It's a toxin to everything. There's no sort of uh, right, I mean, there's no amount that is probably good for you in that regard. But there's also toxins coming from infectious agents, bacteria, viruses. And then we make an awful lot of, quote, toxins in our gut. Uh, there's a compound called lipopolysaccharide, LPS, that basically hangs out on the, the gut bugs, we call them, the little bacteria living in our digestive tract. Some types have more of this LPS than others. And this LPS can uh, translocate into our bloodstream and cause an awful lot of different reactions, inflammatory um, reactions and immune challenges and uh, even disrupt the hypothalamus that we talked about as being the command and control center of the metabolism. And that can create a lot, a lot of unforeseen uh, consequences. So uh, to make this more tangible for everyone listening, because I'm sure some of you are starting to go to sleep now, but here's how you would know that you might be dealing with metabolic endotoxemia. You're, you tend to be, seem to be eating right, you're moving, you're working out, right? You're doing these things that Cody and I are talking about, yet you tend to wake up um, after, you know, in the morning with puffy eyes and achy joints and, you know, sort of daily fatigue and sort of this gurgling sort of, you know, kind of queasy gut at times, or your, your joints are aching for no reason. You don't seem to be um, able to tolerate exercise like you used to. And you're just kind of feeling like you're 80 when you're not. This is probably something going on with uh, metabolic endotoxemia. I wish that I could say I know exactly how to deal with this. <laughs> but we really don't uh, yet, if we're honest. And I believe in being intellectually honest. We just know that it's potentially an issue. But some of what can be done that may be a gross, you know, sort of an overall general good approach is moving away from some of the highly allergenic foods and foods that are irritating to the gut. For example, um, pizza. Pizza is one of the, are one of these foods that has uh, a high amount of, of adjuvant in it. And adjuvant is something that irritates the gut lining. Tomatoes can be irritating to the gut lining. And it also has two highly, you know, two, two types of food groups on it that many people, not all, not 
most actually, but many are um, sensitive to dairy and uh, you know gluten and gluten containing grains. And so something like pizza and or burgers and some of these foods that, that put a lot of sort of load of these types of foods into your system um, should maybe be avoided. That's pretty easy. We all know the idea of eat, you know, whole natural foods and, you know, um, stick with soup, salad, scramble shakes and stir fries. And you're pretty much taking care of this for most people. Um, big long answer. I'll just go ahead and shut up now before I confuse everyone you know, further. But that would be my choice. What would be yours, Cody? It's hard to say. I agree with everything you said, and I agree that it's, it's very opinion-based. I would almost boil it down to simplify it and just say stress in general. Like if we look at the biggest negative effects on your metabolism, like any type of stress, it, it, I think people should start looking at things through a lens of do I actually feel good? right? Do you feel good in the gym? No, I'm performing like shit. I'm very fatigued. Okay. That's a stress. Are you, is your digestion good? No, I've got stress. Okay. That's not good for your metabolism. Are you mentally, emotionally, spiritually, any type of stress you're going through? Are you in a huge deficit? That's not a good stress, right? So I think we have to just look at stress as a whole. And I would say the biggest effect on your metabolism is just going to be as a whole. Are you in that recovery debt? Are you overly stressed? Because we could go down any one rabbit hole of each different stress. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a much better answer than the one I gave, and I, I can't really argue with that either. I think the science geeks will be happy with your answer, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> All right, so the last question we have, uh, this one actually came for, from quite a few people, is they basically just want to know your take on, uh, it's more of a, a theory, um, but a metabolic set point. And I guess we could look at this in a couple different ways, like metabolic set point, but then also like body fat set point, body weight set point. Are these things real? Yeah, I think, I think they're, they're, whether they're real or not, they certainly are, um, they have practical implications. There's no doubt um, that uh, clinically speaking, our bodies tend to want to seek the same sort of body fat level. Um, I, I, I probably prescribe, and it is theory, so just keep that in mind. This is something that, um, I'm one of these people, by the way, and I know Cody knows this about me, and I think him and I share this. I'm one of these people who's really all about being intellectually honest. So this is an opinion. I'm still formulating this, um, but tend to, based on what I've seen, subscribe more to sort of the protein sparing hypothesis currently. Now I may change that sort of approach, but for those of you who don't know, um, the body is pretty sensitive and is constantly sending signals from the fat cells, the muscle cells, all the organ tissues. And one of the things that is most valuable to um, the physiology is our degree of muscle mass because it has an awful lot to do with every single one of our enzymes and all these things that move our metabolism come from proteins and certainly our mechanical ability to go and get food also comes from um, the muscle mass on our body. And so um, in mainly, this is almost all rat studies, um, they have looked at this idea that when you diet down a rat, right, and take, try to take the fat off the rat, one of the things we know about the metabolism is that it will always lose muscle and fat together. You're always going to lose a little bit of lean body mass, um, whether you want to or not. There's many things you can do to keep that from happening up your protein intake while you're, you know, as a, as a percent of macronutrient, train with weights, et cetera. But typically, you're going to lose some of your muscle mass and some of your protein. When they refeed these mice, what they find happens is they will overeat to the extent and to the degree to which they can recoup the previous amount of muscle mass. And um, so what ends up happening in my mind is that what we are essentially doing is moving towards that muscle mass set point. And who knows, maybe there is also a fat set point as well, but that's the theory behind this. And if we can't hit that muscle mass set point, we will keep trying to gain weight and fat up to a or keep eating until we achieve that, which is one of the reasons why we see protein um, being so valuable here. But what are the practical implications of this? Um, I, I can tell you for me, um, I, I spoke last time with Cody about how I went through, I was this lean, sort of fit, egotistical, arrogant dude in my 20s, never had any issues, 6% body fat, just you know, ripped to shreds and just thought everyone was being non-compliant. Then through stress, to go back to Cody's point, and you know, uh, medical school, bartending, just doing all kinds of crazy stuff, I ended up uh, diagnosing myself with hypothyroid. And for a while there, I could not get past the 240s. No matter what I did, 
I would always go back to 240. Now I'm 5'10 and I am a big muscular dude, but someone who's 5'10 and 240 is, you know, basically a muscle fat dude. And I tend to get that muscle fat look um, regardless. It's just kind of how my physiology has been since that. However, I am now successively, you know, I guess, quote, um, reverse set pointed my way down to about 220, 225 since then. And it took about five years to do that. And maybe I'm biased more towards this theory because I did it primarily through addressing this protein sparing hypothesis with myself, meaning that I have, I really ramp up my protein intake, especially after a period of fat loss. So that's sort of my take on that. Yes, I do think there is something going on there. Um, clinically, you certainly will see it. I think the protein sparing hypothesis right now is um, kind of where I spend a lot of my time with people like that. And I have, I also feel like it goes back to what Cody and I were talking about before, that if you're going to get off a set point, one of the major things are watching your protein intake and making sure you're not using the same toggle, eat less, exercise more always, that you bounce back and forth. And this is simply a way of managing stress. Um, so that would be my take on that. And um, I'd, I'd love to hear your take if you got something different, Cody. No, I'm 100% in the same, um, I don't want to say camp because I don't believe there's camps, but I'm in the same uh, thought process as you. And I think that it, to just echo that last part you said, this is why toggling these things is so important. And, and we all have different kind of methods of toggling in and out of things. But the point is, is, is like you've said repeatedly on this podcast, the metabolism isn't linear. It's not just a static thing that never changes. So we do have to change things up as we go through the process. And I think that's the, the overarching theme. And like you said, it took you five years, man. So the longer you wait to do these theories and these methods we're talking about, I think the more likely you are to get into this stuck position with your metabolism or with your body. Um, and, and I mean, you've laid out all the tools to change that, dude. So I think, I think you said that beautifully. Um, the last question for you is, a personality question, as you know, but we're going to change it up. So long story short, I was on another podcast and they had the same personality question as me. So I've since then changed up. So you probably have some different answers for this one, but here's the situation for you. You were on a plane flying across the world. So you have a long flight ahead of you and you have two empty seats next to you. You can pick one person dead or alive, not friends or family to sit next to you. You can pick one book to bring along to read and you can listen to one album of music, not an artist, but an actual album. What are you listening to? What are you reading? And who is sitting next to you on this flight? Yeah, these, I love these kind of questions, right? I think, I think for me, the person sitting next to me is going to be someone who um, has insight about uh, life that would be difficult for me to get um, uh, through my own living. So someone like I, I tend to love people who like Bruce Lee or Muhammad Ali or Nelson Mandela or people who, um, or Martin Luther King, people who um, really were early adapters, had conviction and a chain and, you know, sort of leaders in their field. And I would want to understand uh, their, their mindset and just grill them on how did you think and cultivate? What are the most, what are the success elements uh, there? In terms of a book, it's sort of the same thing. I want to be reading things that challenge my um, preconceived notions. For example, let's say I am um, you know, a lean liberal Marxist, right? I want to read maybe something by Ayn Rand or at, you know, Atlas Shrugged or something to challenge my current beliefs. It's the only way that I learn. And that is, I, I seek that stuff out all the time. And in terms of you know, it, the question about what am I listening to? In that case, I do not love to fly. <laughs> so I'm going to be listening to something like uh, Vancouver Sleep Clinic or some kind of relaxing um, Beethoven, you know, something like that that kind of gets me more into my theta state. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. And I, I think it's cool because uh, you had a similar answer as far as kind of the philosophers with the dinner table last time we had you on. And I think it just goes to show is, people out there looking to have personal growth. I think it's important to challenge your thought process and challenge your own answers constantly, because that really is how you grow as an individual. You know, it's funny, man. I am always to me and I'm glad I finally got here. I used to just be like, let me argue with Cody so I can win. Right. And it's like, I just want to win. I just want to beat him, you know, no matter what. 
Now I go, oh my God, I have this opportunity to learn from somebody and I don't want to win anymore. I want to learn. I'm not, you know, and, and now, and then that takes me to the thing of like, okay, well, if you want to learn, then maybe you should start reading and exposing yourself to things that uh, are going to enlighten you to things you weren't aware about. In my mind, there's things we know we know, there's things we know we don't know, and then there's what we don't know we don't know, and that's everything. So I want to be exposed to the things I had no idea existed. Yeah, I, I 100% agree, man. I couldn't have said it better. Dude, I, I always love having you on the podcast, man. I really do appreciate your time. As always, it's been a great conversation. Um, thanks again, and, and just give everybody your, uh, where they can find your books, where they can find your podcast, your Instagram, all that stuff, so they can tune into more of your information. Yeah, man, always the best combos, man. You're a brilliant dude. I always love getting to touch base with you. For those of you who um, want to find me, at Tita on Instagram is probably the best place to find me on a regular basis. And then jtita.com is my website. You can find all my books in metabolism and personal development there and all that kind of stuff. And I appreciate the interest as always, and I'll definitely try my best. I'm getting a lot of – you're probably getting it too, Cody. A lot of DMs, like lots and lots of questions. I really want to be accessible. So I try to answer them. Um, I don't always get to them, but if you DM me, I promise that I will try. I'm not, I'm not trying to be a dick. It's just that I do get a lot now, which is, it's nice, but sometimes it's hard to get to them all. I totally get it, man. It, it can be tough, but it's, it's always rewarding. So dude, thank you again. I know the pre people appreciate it as much as I do. I appreciate you, bro. I'll talk to you soon, man. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomperformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.